If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Healthcare for Humans, hosted by Dr. Sundar, expands our understanding of the history and culture of different communities and how to provide culturally responsive care. There's an episode you should check out where guest Dr. Duran details the systemic barriers faced by individuals with DACA status and highlights the importance of addressing these barriers. Check out Healthcare for Humans on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. I've got an interesting guest for you today. He happens to be my neighbor and the father of my kids' closest friends. We've had some good conversations over the past couple of years living near one another, and the more I started to learn about his job, the more interested I became in what he does, and finally asked if he'd be willing to do an episode with me uh, to talk about something I think we should all have a better understanding of, water, life's essence, the base of our health. Do you know where your water comes from, how it gets into your home? its journey to your faucet or showerhead, or where it goes once it drops down the drain? I didn't either, and now that I know, I'm a little obsessed thinking about it, and a lot more appreciative for what I've taken for granted for so long. My guest for this episode is Thomas Pan. He works for Wastewater Management and Treatment in both Seattle and Minneapolis, and is here to give us some insight into our clean water supply. He explains the difference between the processes in the two cities, his previous career in waste paper for Kimberly Clark, and his definition of health. This ended up being a far more fascinating conversation than I expected. We started out the conversation talking about his growing up on a dairy farm in the Midwest and how it may have led to his career and developed his sense of environmental awareness. Yeah, my farming background gives a gives a whole different perspective because I lived, I've lived... Um, on a family farm where, you know, the regulations kind of, um, it's viewed from a much different perspective, right? It's viewed yeah. from the hand of government coming down. Um, and all farmers, they, they want to do the right thing, but they just want to get something done. So, um, and, and they, they, they don't know the science. So it's kind of, it's, it's interesting because they don't know the science, right? So, um, they're just trying to, um, have as, as much milk production as they can. Mm. Um, and, and be, and, and there, there's, there is, and, and people think it's, it's, they're giving them this oxytocin, they're giving them everything else. And that, that's not a family farm. That's not the, the place I grew up, but, um, like the antibiotics and that, they just want to see the cow get better. They just yeah. want to get them back into production. It's, it's not, there is no, um, you know, pushing them till they're hobbling and doing that the, the people think of when they think of, uh, especially, um, you know, growing up in a kind of an, uh, living in an urban environment and seeing, um, some of the animal activists and some of the, and, and, and growing up on the farm, there, there is, there's nothing like that. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's just, they're just trying to make a living. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I can see it. I mean, because uh, the Minnesota thing, as you bring that up, um, and a part of part of what the Met Council does is they um, they also do water testing and stuff like that. So okay. um, they'll do uh, so. So they do a lot of what they uh, river quality monitoring, and they also have uh, other sites around uh, watershed monitoring too. So 
that they share with, uh, like the watershed monitoring, a lot of it is shared with the state and with the PCWA and um, the pollution control agency that's in Minnesota, um, which is another, because they're all set up differently state by state. Yeah. All, all pollution control is set up differently. Um, but, uh, yeah, so they share that with them. And then, like, the report that came out this week about um, how the Mississippi is uh, pretty pristine above St. Cloud, but in, they they didn't realize how how um, polluted in their respect is nitrates and phosphorus, which is usually runoff from farmland. Um, and and uh, so they it, from St. Cloud to Minneapolis. And yeah. so where Minneapolis pulls in it is right up at Fridley. That's where they pull their drinking water from. Wow. So so the so below far below where there's actually decent water. Well, it, yeah, and <clears throat> and and so you you got to because um and it's not where they can't do it and it's not where I I am not and and I don't know that much about the water side of it um yeah. since I'm in the wastewater side of it. But there is there is ways you can take out nitrates and phosphorus in the wastewater process. So I'm sure there is ways that they take it out. But it costs it costs more to do that. Yep. Um, and they're just trying to get a control of the point source. But getting control of the point source is hard because you're you're dealing with family farms and yep. and and farmers who are just trying to make a living, not realizing that. Because cause when you when you spray something on the ground, you just think that oh it just goes into the ground and and nature Disappears, takes care of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Nature takes care of it. You don't realize the and nature and nature filters a, a, its percentage, right? That's yeah. that's that's oh, what yeah. that's what it can do. But we're we're overwhelming the 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 ground with how much food do we produce? We yeah. produce we produce most of the a, a vast majority of the world's food. Yeah, I mean, I was watching today, and and you know. Um, our biggest food export is China. We're feeding China too. So yeah. it's not only that we're just, we're not using the ground to just feed us. Yeah. We're using the ground to feed the world yeah. and it's because we have such. So let's, so let's go. Yeah. We're, let's, let's go back to the, <laughs> to the beginning because, uh, it's a, it's a great place to start. I mean, I, I, it's, it's where I think when I, when I, when I thought about talking to you, the, the first thing I thought about, because I also come from a farming background, <laughs> my, my parents, my, my grandparents were farmers and fed, you know, they, they, they were a giant Irish Catholic family. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, that, that part of Iowa at the time was really people who had, you know, come to the area to, to grow and sustain their own families and, and make a small business. So like, that's, that's where I think about food. And, and just recently in getting into some projects, my friend, Dr. Aaron, uh, <clears throat> got, got to, he was working in Dawson, Minnesota, which is like way far West, straight, straight West of, of the Twin Cities, about four hours, I think. And he got to know this organic farmer there who used to work for Monsanto. And, uh, I got to, he came into the city one day to, to talk about stuff. And we went to, um, blue stem, which has a lot of like pictures and, and, and articles and stuff up on the walls by the bathroom that, that, that talks about, you know, sustainability and all this stuff. And he said, you know, if they had this in a, in a restaurant in, in Dawson, you know, that place would be burned to the ground <laughs> because Monsanto has so much control anyway. So, so I wanted, I want to, but I want to get into your, your field specifically. Um, what, what is your, what is your, title you, are you still working at all with seattle 
Yeah. So, so, so you, you have a couple different titles. I'm taking it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a little bit. Um, so I originally worked for uh, Kimberly Clark okay. um, in pulp and tissue. So making tissue paper for 12 years. Um, From like what age to what age? Uh, right out of college. So 22 to um, uh, 32, 34. I okay. Guess. Yeah. Yeah. Can't remember my age all the time. But uh, yeah, so um, I got to be in that industry for a little while, which was very cool because then you get to see the consumer product side of it, um, which is which is interesting. But so I, I have a mechanical engineering degree. So I uh, started in in Wisconsin doing some staff engineering stuff, and then when I moved out to the East Coast, I live right near um, Philly. And, uh, where, where did you go to school in, in oh, Wisconsin? Uh, Milwaukee, yeah, Milwaukee okay. School of Engineering. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. And then, and then you went out to the East Coast. Yeah, yeah. So I was out there for uh, three years, and that's when I first got involved in manufacturing and actually being involved with the equipment. Okay. And that's where the first time I got involved with uh, maintenance and, and uh, getting the and and that's what's really excited me is about the the human interaction with the equipment um, and making sense of that. And using, um, and this is where my my career has taken me. Has started to um, to uh, better, uh, not just efficiency and and people doing tasks and stuff like that, but but make sure that the what the maintenance guys see is what we try to do and yeah. and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So that's when I first got involved with maintenance, and um, I uh, I met my uh, my future wife when I was out in in Philly. And so I had the ability to move within the company out to, uh, Everett where there was another mill, which is just North of Seattle. Okay. So i worked at Everett for 10 years and, um, we, uh, and so Everett's main, um, the tissue process that's, um, so there's, I think, I I don't know if I explained. So there's three main players, usually Georgia Pacific, um, Procter and Gamble and Kimberly Clark. And their main focus had been on margin products. And so, in Everett, just to, just to recap, in Everett, you were you were where? Oh, which 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 company? Uh, Kimberly Clark. Okay, Kimberly Clark. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and uh, and so, but but uh, Everett Mill, um, it came up through. So Scott Paper was around prior to '95 when they merged with Kimberly Clark, but so they were more on the the um volume business so not making margin but making it on making money on volume yeah and the three main players at that time were more focused on doing the margin products so the the cottonelle the um charmin you know and uh not focused on they were doing the the margin the the volume business like the sam's club kirkland signature for costco and that as a like an aside stuff they'd make that sometimes um, but then when the Koch brothers brought Georgia Pacific, who was one of the suppliers for Costco, um, there, it had started a little bit, but they had started making a lot more, uh, private industry started coming in and started to, to, um, you can, because la- it was labor intensive to run the older machines and most of the stuff was made in the 1960s. Um, and so it was starting to get its show its age, but the newer machines you could run with. Instead of having like four or five operators on a shift to run one of the bigger machines, um, they could run double the size of the machine with the automation and run it with one operator. 
And what was your role as far as like, um, you were the machine you, you were yeah. supervising the process? Or? So I was really, um, title was asset engineer, but it was um, in, so, so I think we went through a little bit, but the tissue making process is really in two forms. It's uh, manufacturing, which is taking the pulp and making enormous rolls of tissue, 12 foot diameter t- rolls of tissue. Yeah. And then the other side of the process is where you make that into the logs and cut it up, which is usually converting or finishing, they call it in the industry. But um, yeah, so I was in in Philly, I was in the finishing side, the converting side. And that, that would be more like little project stuff, upgrading packaging equipment and that kind of stuff like that. On the tissue manufacturing side, really you tried to shut the machine down. We were at like quarterly, we would shut it down for 24 hours. Okay. So... Um, for the most part, it was about uh, planning for those types of uh, massive maintenance where you'd go in and, and you'd, you'd load up on your own, not only your own workforce, but you'd sometimes bring in contractors to work on the machine to get it all set to go for another uh, 13 weeks. Um, yeah. And so it, it's, a, it's a little bit different of planning. The other thing is... In, um, the nice thing about the tissue industry is you get involved with, as as me from a mechanical engineering side, I got to get involved with a lot of steam distribution, uh, hydraulics, um, and then fluids because it, there's a lot of pumping of pulp and everything else. Yeah. So. And and this is the place that was really old, right? I mean, this this, yeah. this factory. Yeah. So the mill had been around since a, in the 1910s, 1920s is when it when it came around. That's incredible. The um oh, the one in uh south of Philly in Chester where I worked prior to that had been around. It was an old soap factory that was around in the 1900s. So so what's the history of of tissue? Like when did when did we start using toilet tissue? Um, so it was about the early 1900s. Okay. Um, and really the the mass production of what we know as the tissue industry didn't start until like the 1950s, 1940s, 1950s, 1960s. Um, and really it, uh, so there was a, it started up in like the twenties when they started making more mass tissue and then the depression. And, um, you see this gap in when they, uh, started to make machines because all the metal processing that would go into making industrial equipment was, was used for the war. So, Ah. It, you see a gap of when new you machines get parts came out. and yeah. stuff. Yeah, well, and and they didn't they didn't allow you to build new machines oh, because okay. I mean the the one thing about the tissue um, that's a little bit different from paper is fine paper uses a lot of drums and dries the paper slowly and they and they dry it. I mean, normal like writing paper is about eighty nine percent wood and about eleven percent um, water. Tissue, on the other hand, when you dry it, you dry it to about three percent so you dry it a lot more it's thinner but you dry it a lot more um and and they had to i mean when when they started making like the premium tissues they actually dried it even more and then they started to to look into uh especially in the south the air conditioning and all kinds of other stuff HVAC systems keep it dry but um just as as an aside how how do they get the lotion on the tissue oh um so uh, there's there's a couple ways. One is so like Viva paper towels, right? Yeah. So we were I was at a Viva plant too, and there were only at that time there were two machines in North America that made Viva, um, because it was 
um, the manufacturing process of it is you had to have machines that, uh, in order to coat both sides, you had to uh, coat both sides of tissue. And how you did that was one of the machines was, the, the first half of the machine was above the second half. So that's how you'd flip the paper around to coat the other side. <laughs> oh my God. So they have to go and, and double back <clears throat> on itself, right? Um, since then they've, uh, they've started to do it more in the, uh, in the finishing process. So they'll, um, usually what they do is they have, they, it's, it's like printing. So they, instead of, instead of, um, index printing, you just, you slather a whole side of a roll and then you, um, you usually, well, you usually do it to the top side. Actually, no, the bottom side of the roll because uh, top side you drip onto the paper. So you usually do it on the bottom side, print one side, and then um, you you have to turn the paper and print the other side. So so how how is 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 that not uh, in terms of waste management? What's the what's the impact of adding stuff like that? Is is that considered like an additive that's harder to break down environmentally, or is it? Um, the lotions, I'm I'm just always, I'm always interested in like what, what my impact is. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you know how they always say, don't throw paper towels down the drain, right? Right. Don't down the, down the toilet. Always, always put them and wet wipes too. Right. Um, the reason is, is because, um, in, in the manufacturing process, we put, uh, well, not we anymore, but I mean, they, they put wet strength additives in order to make sure it holds up against water. So they'll put chemicals in the, in the paper. And, um, especially in paper towels, they, yeah, yeah. uh, they don't do it like some of them, like, uh, probably the high end Charmin and the high end Cottonelle, they do put some wet strength in just to hold it up. Um, like Scott tissue, they don't. And that's why, that's why those ones say septic, septic safe is because they don't okay. actually put any wet strength additive into it. So, so we're sort of transitioning yeah. into, into waste management. Yeah, yeah, we are. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 so from, from Everett, you, you move up to Seattle area. You, you take a job there. How do you, how do you end up there? Yeah. So, um, the, the Everett mill got, got shut down because, um, they had, they were getting a lot more pressure from private label. And the other thing that was different about the Everett mill that was the last of its kind for Kimberly Clark at that time was it was an integrated pulp and paper mill. So we actually brought in wood chips, pulped them up and then put them through the tissue process. Um, What they do now is um, either there's pulp mills in Canada and they make um, big like uh, three by three cardboard stock of white paper um, if you, if you see train cars, you'll see them, you'll see like GP written next to it. And that's usually the, you, you'll start to see if, if you know what to look for. Yeah. Um, the other part of it is, so that's for, um, that's softwood, that's pine and stuff for hardwood, which is actually soft to the, it's, it's shorter fibers, okay. which is softer to the touch. We actually get it from Brazil, Spain, eucalyptus. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So they, it's it's global the way they source their paper. Anyway, so um, with with an integrated pulp mill, um, you couldn't. So we still got. Uh, we were trying to get some maple in and some other stuff to try and uh, be more localized with with our supply chain mm-hmm. and not have to go yeah, to Brazil. Yeah. But um, it has its own problems. But and controlling quality at that point is a little bit more difficult when you yeah. start doing wood chips because you're getting you're getting the scraps from a sawmill at that okay. point. Um, Anyway, so it was their last one of that, and so they wanted to. There was there was pressure to shut that one down, um, which, as far as environmental, they were, 
they wanted to do some really interesting things, but um, because it was such a corporation, um, they wanted to stay with their core products. Like one of the ones that they wanted to try and do was since it's a pulp mill, they can they they actually are set up to process wood and and lignin and and the processes from plants. So they ferment it. So they can mm. actually make biofuel oh, a wow. lot easier than they're set up to do it because that's what their process is. Right. Right. So they were looking with the University of Washington to because make. Because there was money to be made yeah. by the, the, the byproduct. Right. And, and they were they were just about to pull the trigger in 2006, 2007 to make a pilot plant and start making biofuel. Mm-hmm. And then the recession happened and the subsidies went away uh-huh. for all biofuels. So there was the the payback was too too long for a private company to do it anymore. Yeah, yeah. So they stopped it. But it was just interesting things how things turn in cycles, right? Yeah. Um. Yeah. So that mill got shut down. Um. And then I was looking for a job, and I was I was really involved with the shutdown of the mill because I had been there for ten years and and knew the equipment and knew other Casey uh, Kimberly Clark facilities. So I was able to move move the equipment around. And our environmental manager who was involved in the in the demolition of the site because it had been around since nineteen twenties. Yeah. There was stuff there. Um there was a whole uh so the mill was built on the sound. And when I say built on the sound, the land that was there was not really there. It was all fill that was put there when the mill was built. So everything was on pilings hmm. and it used to have this huge um, kind of pond in the center of the mill where they bring the logs in and they had that had all been filled in. So they didn't know what was there, <laughs> right? They didn't know what they filled this thing with. And, um, uh, and, and the other thing that kind of was hard for it was because the bay that it came into was the port of the Navy port forever. So they brought the yeah. aircraft carrier in there. But yeah, so th- hundred years of anything being in one place, you yeah. find. A, I, I helped uh, when I when I started the the center that I started in in Brooklyn in like two thousand five, two thousand six. We did a we did a gut reno. We had to because we started finding all sorts of stuff. There was like fire damage in the walls. They had to like put in re- new support beams because they realized the fire had actually weakened like the whole center structure of the building. <laughs> We found newspaper in the walls for insulation. We found they had tile with linoleum on top with all this stuff underneath the hardwood <laughs> and that the weight of that was actually going to collapse the floor eventually. So we had to like have that broken through it. All that tile had to break through concrete underneath it had to break through into the basement to like get that. Uh, it's just, uh, it's, oh. it was, it's yeah. always fascinating. Yeah. There was some interesting stuff and a pulp mill is not necessarily the, uh, the, environmentally friendliest process. Sure. Um, But uh, yeah, so I knew him and he actually came from the city of Everett in their, uh, in their wastewater district before he came to be the environmental manager over at the Kimberly Clark mill. And during that process, he got a job with um, King County wastewater district. Mm. And so when, when I was looking for a job, it came up that they needed a reliability engineer there. And so I came in to, I filled that position. And so that's how I got into wastewater. Gotcha. So, um, so, so, and, and we, we, we talked a little bit before and and didn't get this on, on record, but so, so, so you, you were involved in, in where they had to set this up. 
Well, that was before I came because when I came, the the so what the job was for the reliability engineer was for a new treatment plant because okay, yeah. King County had started to move. They they needed more capacity for their wastewater system. Um, and, uh, because so, Seattle was growing. Or, yeah. Because yeah. Seattle was growing and the, well, really it was the suburbs that were growing too. The, right, right. the urbanization starting to come, yeah. but, um, well, there's different reasons why they can, why treatment plants can handle the urbanization better than they can handle, um, the sprawl sprawl. Okay. And so, so they needed to handle the sprawl a little bit more. So they wanted to build one North. Um, and, and they did that, uh, with, um, Brightwater, which is the treatment plant, um, which is about, it's about a fourth of the capacity of the other two, but it was made to handle the, um, and, and it was made at that point in time, it was the largest membrane treatment plant in the world. So, and, and so membrane treatment plant, um, is the new technology in, in wastewater treatment, which is, uh, the membranes, they, uh, they're microscopic holes that you take the water through to filter out and they can filter out bacteria. They can filter out some viruses from it. And they're, and they're, and they're way more efficient, uh, in terms of cleaning the water than, than other yeah, methods, so, methods had been. Yeah. So normal treatment process, um, even around the twin cities and the other two there, they take it, um, just to go, I guess we can go through a little bit of the treatment process, right? So when when the wastewater comes in, and collection's a whole different thing, but when wastewater comes in to a treatment plant, they they first screen out the big stuff, right? The uh, the tires that come through the wastewater. I mean, they they get they get amazing. It, you wouldn't think it could fit down the pipe, and someone could get it down there, but amazingly, some things find themselves oh through there. But yeah, so they they have uh, they're called bar screens, but it's just a it's a big grate and they just, they, they take out the trash and really that goes to landfill. Okay. And then they go through a, uh, um, uh, they, they, they kind of churn up the water a little bit and send it through settling tanks. And really what the job of a settling tank is the, the, um, the, uh, inorganics, they try and settle out to the bottom. Yeah. Um, and, uh, actually that's, that's right before the settling tanks, but they settle out the inorganics and that actually gets sent to landfill too, because it's inorganic. Yeah. Then the next start is the, they settle out the heavy organics and let the scum and the fats and the oils sit on top. So they skim off the scum on the top and the heavy organics, they, um, they, they send that as sludge and to, uh, solids process. So if we keep going through the liquids process, that liquid then they send to aeration basins. So they pump a whole bunch of air into it. And really it is to feed bacteria to eat the organics that are, that are, that are insoluble. So they're, or soluble. They're, they're contained in the water and they can't get it out by settling. So the bugs eat it. They die. They take that and they process that in the, in the sludge. Um, and then the final settling is they just let it sit with more bacteria, not, not as, not as much, not any air yeah. in them. Um, and then after that, it's, uh, usually taken off site. And they, it, it, after, after that, they call it secondary. So, um, in the early days, it, the, the first part of the settling part and no aeration and bugs, yeah. that's primary treatment. And, um, there's, there's cities to this day that just do primary treatment, not mm-hmm. secondary treatment. Really? Um, like large cities too? 
Vancouver, BC. Wow. Because they were coming down and looking at us to yeah, see yeah. how they could put in secondary. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, there's, there's larger cities that still do it. Um, it's just a matter of, it's, it's a lot more cost to do yeah. because you got to yeah. pump air. You got to have huge blowers. You have to yeah. have a lot of stuff to do it. Yeah. Um, so, so out of that secondary process, um, you usually send it out, you, know, you send it out to a body of water. Um, and usually you put in a little bit, either chlorine or you do some sort of disinfection on it okay. um, to kill the final stuff. Um, so in in a membrane treatment plant, they take it through these filters um, instead of they take, still take it through aeration, but then they take it through these filtering um, banks and that'll get it about seven times cleaner. So you can use it as um, reclaimed water at that time yeah. to use normal conventional treatment as reclaimed water for people to use on um some cities do take it back, but they have to do even more treatment on it. Yeah, yeah. To to take it into drinking imagine. straight straight into drinking water system. Reclaimed water is usually used for like irrigation, um, not non potable use. Yeah. Um although that's still going into, you know, the ground and Yeah. yeah. Well 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 in that in that case what they what they want to do is not not and and as my as the, the environmental guy who uh, when when I worked there he said if if you if you were in if you were in a, a less sterile society, yeah, you could drink the water that came yeah. out of our water. Yeah. Okay, it's, it's a matter of our our guts aren't made to do it, right? So we would get sick, but it's not like it's just not used to it. Right? Gotcha. So the ground can the ground can handle it from yeah. It. It's just well, our guts can't. Yeah. So so what's the what's the so what's the difference between like your 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 role in Minneapolis now and, and what you did in Seattle is, is, and, and is the, is the process different? Is the, is the, um, yeah. So the most, yeah. So the process is different in, in Minneapolis. So Minneapolis has, um, seven main treatment plants. Um, the, the big one is the one in St. Paul and that takes the majority of the metropolitan area. Okay. Um, and, and it's, it's all conventional. Um, the only one that's actually new is there's one up in East Bethel that's new, and that one is a membrane. Is a membrane, plant. and that one's doing the. So why they did that one is because they're actually doing direct groundwater injection with that one. Okay, they're sending it right back into the ground, which, um, as as far as so now we can get talking up a little bit about the environment, how yeah. what we do. So uh, Seattle's a lot the. So Seattle, you get everything, all the drinking water and everything from the mountains, right? Okay. And then it goes out to Puget Sound. And that's the way the treatment plants work, too. So we get all the wastewater, and then we send it out to Puget Sound. Um, so that, that just just like from start to finish, so the water comes, yeah. you know, either it's, it's either it's you know, rain, it's, it's frozen water, mm-hmm. it comes down, it's filtered to some extent by the, by the ground, and then it ends up in, in the Puget. And, uh, and, but the difference between, so, so we're, we're naturally following the water cycle pretty much. Right. Yeah. In Minnesota. One and, of the flattest places on earth. <laughs> yeah. So we're getting, you're taking all of this drinking water. A lot of it is coming from groundwater sources. Um, not Minneapolis, Minneapolis taking from the river, but for the most part, these outlying communities that we're taking into these main, oops, we're taking into the main treatment plant, um, it's we're taking it from the groundwater and then we're putting it back into the river 
Okay. So it's a lot different than the water cycle that we do. Anything come from from lakes, or do we? Have, we don't have any watersheds or anything like that here. Do it, we? It matters. I, I, yeah, and I, and I'm not on the water side as much, so yeah. I just know how the wastewater side gotcha. would do. Okay, and that's, gotcha. That's really why East Bethel they want to do groundwater injection because if if you, and and they're looking into it more about reusing because we don't we don't have any reclaimed water reuse okay. in. Um, in the metropolitan area. Um, they're, they're looking at it. And the reason they are is because we're, we're draining the aquifers yeah. and putting it back into the river. We're sending it down to New Orleans, right? Yeah. We're not replenishing that aquifer. So even though, you know, the Midwest is, has a lot in the aquifers, there's, there's a limit to what we can do. Um, so they've been starting to look at it and see how they can reuse the reclaimed water to huh. use it out into the, um, communities, but but the problem is is that uh, one of the main issues and and when they were citing Brightwater out in uh, Seattle, they they did it with the intent that they wanted to use the reclaimed water from that. So they're actually doing it in Seattle, uh-huh. um, and uh, and the citing process. So for a treatment plant, usually you want it in a low lying area so you can just gravity feed everything. Yeah, yeah. And you don't have to pump anything, right? right? You don't want to pump stuff. It's trying to save energy, yeah. money, cost. Yeah. The problem with that is then if you want to use the reclaimed water, you got to distribute it somehow. So you right. got to pump it back up, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but Brightwater, they actually put the the main collection station is in the low lying area. The treatment plant is up on a hill. Ah. So they pump all of that. They pump the wastewater two and a half miles uphill, up. treat it, and but now they have a charged capacity of reclaimed water that they actually don't have to pump. Hmm. And they feed they right now they just have a golf course, but they've been they're starting to bring online some grass farms and some other stuff. But yeah. They're starting to reuse it, um, but uh, it it's kind of funny because they so. No one wanted a treatment plant in their backyard, right? So the siting process of that one, um, they were going to put it right next to the sound on an old, um, there's, I think the refinery is a little bit reused, but where the outfall is, which it means where, where we send the water out into Puget Sound, um, that's where the original, one of the original sightings was going to be, but it was right next to a city and there wasn't a, there was a, there wasn't a good, um, there was a road, but it was only a two lane road and it was kind of in a residential area. And so the problem is, um, the byproduct of wastewater treatment is the solids process, which we yeah, didn't go yeah. through. We didn't go right. through solids yet, but yes, I, I mean, I've, I was, I was thinking about it when you were talking about yeah. it. But I was, I was like, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but so that had a restricted access kind of, and so they didn't, um, really the, the mayors and them really fought it heavily because they yeah. didn't want all that yeah. industrial equipment coming in and out. So they they cited it at an old garbage dump, uh, an old uh, it was a uh, not a garbage dump but a, uh, um, a demo demo yard where they put old cars and a soup factory was there too. <laughs> and the funny thing was is that the neighbors they really didn't want it because they 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 were fed up with the soup factory because it just it, stinks. It, they said on French Onion Soup Day it was like the whole neighborhood <laughs> oh, oh smelled my, right. Yeah. Um, but when they put in, I joke about Brightwater because it's like a, it's a, it's an odor control facility attached to a wastewater treatment plant. Cause yeah. we, it is just, it, and, and the agreement with the, the neighboring community was that they would not, 
the, so it's a it's a 90 acre um, plot of land. 30 acres is the treatment plant, and um, the rest is all uh, the restoration for the, they when they when they built the treatment plant they um, they decided they wanted to do low impact construction so. Everything they dug up, they kept there. So there's a couple of hills for mm. when they when they dug down to create all the tanks yeah, and stuff. Yeah. Um, and they also resurrected one of the streams, one of the natural streams that was going through there. So it's a it's walking past and everything else. And they the agreement was they wouldn't be able to smell anything outside of the main 30, uh, 30 acre fence. Hmm. And so that's what they did. And it we they've ne- since 2012 they've never had an order complaint. Wow. Because they, it's, it's, you, you walk that treatment plant and you cannot tell you're in a treatment plant. That's pretty surprising. Um, yeah. It's only when you open the doors that you can actually, that you start to smell. But other than that, um, yeah. So solids process, they, so all that sludge we collect, um, it, it goes through and there's a couple ways that they do it. So in Seattle, um, they actually, so they, they uh they they take out some of the water and they put that back into the um the liquids process the rest of the sludge they take into digesters and they digest it and they take the methane and is the um, digesting with the with the bacteria yeah yeah so they have anaerobic bacteria in the digesters that they um that they use in order to digest and create and it creates methane and um it breaks down all of the um the harmful bacteria that are in the wastewater okay. that's in the sludge. Um, and so the methane they use to, and actually in, in parts of it, sometimes they compress the methane and put it back into the natural gas system. Um, they can do that. That's really expensive mm. to do it that way. So normally what they do is they run their boilers off of it and heat the water around oh, the wow. treatment plant. Um, and then they do the excess gas. They do flare off, um, if they have any, um, they will. Uh, but in, um, and so then that, that digested sludge, um, they send it through big, it's big dryers. Like you see, they're not heated, but they run just like a dryer, but they're very industrials and they're called centrifuges. Yeah. Yeah. And you usually hear about centrifuges in the nuclear process. Right, right. Right. Yeah. So, but these ones, it's just a dry, it's just a dryer slings it to the side and yeah. dries that dries it out. And so they, what they do with that at King County is, um, they will direct land apply that to some farmland. A lot of it goes back out to eastern Washington, gets mixed with regular um, uh, compost, and then they make compost out of it. Okay. Um, in in the Twin Cities, um, there's only there's two treatment plants: one down at Empire and one out in Blue Lake that they do um, the Shakopee that they do uh, digesters on. Okay. The all the rest of them, um, the sludge they collect at each of the small treatment plants. So Hastings, Stillwater has one, um, Cottage Grove has one, um, and uh, yeah. So those ones, and when they do Empire and Blue Lake, when they're not digesting, they send their sludge back to the Metro treatment plant, which is the one in St. Paul, um, and they burn it. Hmm. And um, and it's not in. in it's it's burned in, in a fluidized bed reactor, which is a it's it's a really kind of so all they have to do is they 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 start it up with natural gas, yep. put the sludge in, 
and it just continuously burns. And so they don't have to add any more natural gas after the initial startup. So there's enough BTUs in in poo yeah. to to fire it up, to keep it going. And so it's really in in cold weather environments, it's it's something to do because you if you had digesters and you had the the sludge coming out of it, you got to do something with yeah, it, yeah. right? And and so they that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And they and so environmentally, um, talking to the health aspect of it, the the land application in that has even gotten a little bit more. Um, there's it's interesting because Washington has such a um, a culture of environmentalism, yeah. right? That there's people who are actually against land application of human um, sludge because of the chemicals that the treatment process can't take out. Right. So there's a lot of people who are worried about that who don't like the idea of, of land application on farms mm-hmm. and, and that produce food for, for humans. Yeah. There's been no, nothing that's, and it's hard to do a long-term study on that. I and, know. and so, um, cause at best we're how many years in at this point, you know, in terms of even yeah. studying it. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, I mean, you could probably, you know, I mean, there's, there's always the, the business side of this. And then what, what, you know, is like the, you know, from an energy standpoint, how much it takes to, to, to clean, you know, this pro through this process. I'm sure, I'm sure you can. So if if you see the, where, where do you think the future of this is going in terms of efficiency and, and being able to deal better with, with the environmental impact stuff? Yeah. Um, the chemical ones are just it um it, it's going to be hard cuz there's there's nothing that can strain out the chemicals and the like the um a lot of the the um facial cleansers and and your body and body washes start to have exfoliating yeah which are just plastic beads yeah yeah they don't break down at all yeah we're sending them right back out because we we have nothing Unless you're in the membrane process, and then we got to do something with it once we clean out the digestion. And there are just very few of these out there. Yeah. So, so for, let, another thing I've been thinking about, just because we are neighbors, <laughs> get to see sort of your your day to day process a little bit. I, I've been thinking more and more about. I I try to do my best as far as you know what what I feel like I can do for my impact, mm-hmm. but I, I also feel like I know very little about that. So if, if for for anyone listening what what kinds of things could people do to sort of like you know help this this process a little bit if you know i mean in, environmentalists are are there to sort of you know hold us to certain standards but at, mm-hmm. at the same time i feel like we we also you know on personally and i get into this with my you know sort of dialogue around healthcare as well we 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 have a role that if if we knew like let's say three things that that we could do better what what would that be mm-hmm. um so anything that's that's inorganic never put down a never put down a toilet never put down because all you're doing is you're sending it to a treatment plant and then we have to take it out in the initial process and we're sending it to a landfill and and that would so, be would would you consider these like cleansers and those kinds of things to be part of that so the cleansers are hard because you're not you can't collect them um right. so it's kind of a it's it's a give and take kind of thing i mean there's but but um one one big one is like wet wipes so baby yeah, wipes and yeah. stuff it, and they say flushable 
they're not flushable. Yeah. And and the treatment process has such a hard time with them. Okay. Because our and, and so the one I didn't talk about was how we actually get it to the treatment plant, right? It's on yeah. the east side of St. Paul. Yeah. And we're collecting from the east side of St. Paul is treating everything from like Brooklyn Center up in the no- So the, the entire yeah. Minneapolis St. Paul for the most region, part, right? yeah, it's yeah. Like so three and a half million people. Egan's got their own. Um, Minnetonka's got Blue Lake that it goes to. Okay. But as far as everything else, everything to the north, Roseville, um, way up in Hugo. I mean, we're we're conveying all of that down, and it's not all by gravity. So, yeah. um, we take it to gravity, and then you pump it back up, and then you take take it to gravity again. And those pump stations, they don't have. They don't have bar screens. They don't have any of the screening equipment right. for the most part. Yeah. So we're spending time going out and making sure that those ones aren't plugged up. And, and that's, that's actually where you get your overflows. You don't get your overflows or, or any kind of sewage contamination from the treatment plants. Yeah. They don't, they're, they're huge. They and, don't. And I think this is interesting to talk about because most people, I think, like, and I'm, I'm sure I was, you know, I, I know a little bit more about process now, but we, we, we live in a, a, an area with so much water, with mm-hmm. so many lakes. And I think some people think that, you know, we're just filtering, you know, water from all the water that's around us. And we're not, we're not realizing how much of this wastewater is being reused and how much of it needs to be reused because it has to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and that, you know, that's actually our, our source. And I think it's I think it's it's good for people to understand this process a little bit. Yeah, and and I would say even before for the past five years, I've been learning about this because yeah. I mean the even when I worked for I didn't know what what a whole wastewater process was. Yeah, and I mean we were talking about this at work the other day is that we don't teach civics anymore. We don't teach how the public sector works. Yeah. Right. We don't, and and there's a lot that goes into it. I mean, people like to think that government is wasteful, but there's there's a lot of long term thinking in how to yeah. do it. That pipe that was over in St. Paul, it was built in the the nineteen tens, nineteen twenties. It's a it's a fourteen foot diameter pipe sitting underneath ninety four that um that we can send a boat down <laughs> to to inspect it, right? Wow. It's it's huge. And um so I, I talked about the the sprawl being more of an issue than the urbanization and and that's because of that because the sprawl we have to take care of an account with lift stations right. urbanization we're actually set up a lot better to do yeah. that because we don't have to move as much right i mean it's well, it's a matter of it's, distance and well there's there's a couple reasons one is because everything was combined so it used to be that all of your drain spouts all of your all of the the um the runoff from the streets and everything else um, stormwater runoff all went into the sewer system and everything went down to the treatment yeah. plant. So the treatment plant used to, used to have to Take handle everything. like 300 MGD. So 300 million gallons a day. Wow. Now it's handling like 180. It's like, it's, 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 um, yeah, it's, it's probably, you know, half to three quarter capacity. Yeah. And so, so there's room in the pipes to yeah. do urbanization. Yeah. Um, but interesting. Uh, 
Well, this is this has been awesome talking about. <laughs> I I I, I kind of wanted to like get into you a little bit for for one other thing because yeah. you're you're like a, a super avid cyclist, one of the most avid cyclists <laughs> I know. Did did that did that come out of your the the environmental part of the work that you did, or have you always been? Um, it came a little bit about so so when I moved um to the West Coast, um I got. I got my first road bike when I moved to the West Coast. So I didn't start cycling until I was 25, 26. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of what I, I, I started to right? then. And, and you know, I, I didn't do any really on the farm either because we lived, you know, we lived a mile away from anyone else. Right? Yeah. Um, so everything was, it was all car if you wanted to yeah, go somewhere. Yeah. Um, so uh, when I started working um, up in Everett, it was about uh, 15, 10, 15 miles. And I should have ridden every day for that point. But I wasn't I wasn't in that mindset yet. We had two cars. Um, we didn't have to. I didn't have to ride. So I'd only ride like in the in the nice, nice days right, in right. summer. Right. And then when I moved down to Seattle, uh, we moved we moved closer to Seattle. So like right inside, right in um, just a little neighborhood in Seattle. And uh at that point, I said, I'm going to get rid of my car when we move because, one, I don't want two cars in an urban yeah, environment. Yeah. And um, that's kind of how I started. And I too. said, we didn't need it. And so I moved down there and I had a really nice express bus I could take up to the work up in Everett. And then when I was looking for another job, um, uh, and it was all it was all reverse commute because I was heading out of Seattle. Um, and then when I was looking for the next job, I got the job as a reliability engineer at, at King County. And. Um, it was an 18 mile commute and it was, it was reverse and there was no bus service that would get me up there early enough. So I was like, okay, well I'll, I'm going to try it. I'm going to yeah. try riding. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so that's when I started back in, uh, 2012. I started and, and now yeah, I, I, and you're, so we're, you're in the, what, in an extreme weather environment where you can get like hundred degree days, <laughs> negative 20 days. Do, do you have a, do you have a cutoff as far as weather is concerned? Or is it just ice? Um, and, and snow. And so, so that was the one thing where I came out here. I was like, cause I didn't, uh, so I got, I got to separate it from my, uh, from my wife when I was still out in Seattle. And so when, when I moved out to an apartment, um, I didn't have a car. So yeah. I, I just, I went car free for those, um, about a year, year and a half. I was wow. car free. And so then when I moved out here, I was like, I really love to go car free. And we moved out in August. So I was car free yeah, up until. I remember you didn't have a car for a little while. Yeah. I was yeah, car free right. up until uh, a couple months in, about three months in. And then I got the old car that we had. Um, and, and I've tried. And, and so the first winter I tried riding my regular commuting bike that I did in Seattle and I had my first first real snow going in and i probably went down like five times oh that's a lot and uh i've only gone down once and it was a <laughs> totally silly thing where like i i, I realized there was it was like rush hour i realized i had to sort of move up to a sidewalk for one point and i mm -hmm. like went went around something and then i didn't see the snow plow had like sort of plowed in a sidewalk area and i sort of hit this bank of like three foot of snow <laughs> to go through it and it just hit and i just turned over on my side and fell into the snow bank so but i've seen i've seen people go down and in ice before which is a really bad wreck most of the time 
Yeah, yeah. So I was driving my first time in, and I had gone down like five times because it was snow, and I didn't have I didn't have any kind of it was just regular tires on a on a seven hundred twenty eight. And now you have the spikes. Yeah. So little... I at that point I was like, screw this. On the ride home, I went to the bike shop and I said, okay. And I talked to some people about what to do for winter. Yeah. And they said, um, a couple of the avid cyclists, they said, get a fixie. And so, and now I'm riding. Yeah. I, I, so I got a, a fixed gear. So the pedals move when, when in the bike, back bike wheels, the back wheel moves and it doesn't. Um, and, and there is no coasting. Right. So I got that and then I got studs. Um, and uh, I, um, when I take the kids to school, I'll take the car cause just want them. Yeah. And I, and I do have, I, I have a, a family bike, so I have a long tail, big dummy, surly, big dummy. That, that thing's amazing. And, uh, yeah, we got that when we were out in Seattle and, and it's decked out so that, so I have a little five and a eight year old girls. Our, our, our friends are our buddies. Yeah. I mean, our friends, our, our, our kids are friends. <laughs> they're, they're best buddies. But, uh, yeah, so they'll sit on, both sit on the back. And, um, yeah, we'll go around wherever. And, um, I've taken them, we'll go on 10, 12 mile bike rides with that thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And, uh, yeah. So and, what's your, what's your, right now, what's your average weekly log of, of miles now that you're, cause you're, you're, you're all over the place. Yeah. If I go, um, if I ride norm, my normal week will be around, if I commute all five days and usually I'll average about three to five days of commuting and it's 18 miles one way. So I'll go about 200 miles in a week. That's amazing. If I do it. I, I pale by comparison. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I asked, I, I like to ask a lot of my guests now to, to the, the, the title of the podcast is health is, uh, at the moment within a, uh, ellipse. I know and want to, want to kind of get some feedback. Mostly I'm kind of gathering information about, what what people you know uh, their their own personal belief system around health and what they sort of develop for themselves. So I asked you to to finish the statement. Uh, health is yeah dot, dot, dot. yeah. And I, I was thinking about it, and um, mine is just health to me is kind of living within my means. It's mm. more um, you know if. And, and the, the cycling thing and, uh, especially working for, um, in, in the public domain in a kind of health, environmental kind of, um, environment, um, it's, it's, it's been a lot more of, you know, uh, if it takes me, it only takes me a half hour longer to ride in. It only takes me, um, but, but it's, it's consistent. Yeah. And. Um, and, and it, it, to me, and, and I'll, I'll get out and I'll have to go run errands and, and I can, I can ride there. And it's, it's, to me, it's, it's a lot more freeing, especially in an urban environment to ride around. Um, but, but the living within my means, it's just, uh, it's, um, trying to do things simply and trying to do things within my means is, is what, what health, what, what I've grown to have as my definition of, of trying to live healthy. Yeah. I like it. And I, and the consistency part is like a huge part of things that I I tend to sort of preach with people when I'm, you know, we, I think a lot too many times we get into these up and down periods where we decide to like, 
you know, eat really healthy for a little while because I mean, it's, it's just past new year's resolution time. <laughs> like <laughs> I go through this with everyone's like cutting this out, doing this. And I, and I really think it's, you know, there's a, there's a certain amount of moderation built in. If you're consistent, you don't really have to think about that part. If you've already built that part into your lifestyle. And that's, I, I, I kind of appreciate that about the way that you go through things. So cool. Thanks. All right, man. This was fun. Yeah. If if anyone has any questions, you can contact me. I have my uh, my email up on the website. If you got any questions for Tom, maybe we can do a follow-up. Yeah. And uh, until next time, be well. Thanks. Pretty interesting stuff. Some things in there I perhaps didn't want to know about the reuse of water, but it makes sense. There's a finite supply of resources on the planet, and water has to rank up there near the top of those we need to protect. If you've seen the movie The Big Short, you know that Dr. Michael Burry, the guy that Christian Bale played, who figured out the banking industry was bound to collapse from its lending habits, which it did in 2008, is now investing in water. Without getting too gloom and doom, I think the lesson to be learned here is that we take a lot for granted. And the better our understanding of how our world around us works, the more connected we are to the source, in this case, water, the thing that makes this planet inhabitable, Without it, we don't exist. Thanks so much to Tom for taking the time to meet with me for this conversation. I really like his take on health, keeping it simple. It's a good reminder for all of us. Something simple I like to start with when I'm treating people with acute and even chronic conditions is to develop a habit of water consumption. Most data suggests about 64 ounces a day, give or take, based on your activity level, size, climate zone, etc., And I find that this simple shift alone can often decrease the symptoms of chronic pain, discomfort, GI issues, and a host of other things. It's a simple test to see if hydration is part of your health challenge. Also, cost-free. Please post your comments to me and let me know what you thought of this topic. Looking forward to hearing from you. Until next time, be good to your planet, be kind to each other, take care of yourself. Be well, my friends. If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Healthcare for Humans, hosted by Dr. Sundar, expands our understanding of the history and culture of different communities and how to provide culturally responsive care. There's an episode you should check out where guest Dr. Duran details the systemic barriers faced by individuals with DACA status and highlights the importance of addressing these barriers. Check out Healthcare for Humans on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.